0: Welcome to this American Journal of Gastroenterology podcast. I'm Brian Lacey, Professor of Medicine at the Mayo Clinic Jacksonville and Co-Editor-in-Chief of the American Journal of Gastroenterology, along with Brennan Spiegel, my Co-Editor-in-Chief from Cedars-Sinai in Los Angeles. I am delighted to be speaking today with Dr. Alina Allen from the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology, Mayo Clinic Rochester. Today we'll discuss her recent article, Women with Non-Alcoholic Fatty Liver Disease Lose protection against cardiovascular disease, a longitudinal cohort study, which was published online in the American Journal of Gastroenterology in November 2019 issue. Dr. Allen, welcome. I want to start this podcast just a little bit differently than some of our other podcasts. And what I mean by that is for our listeners who are gastroenterologists and hepatologists and seeing sick people in the hospital and doing procedures. I want to start with a discussion on cardiovascular disease and risk factors. Remind us again, what are the classic risk factors for cardiovascular disease?
1: Hi. First of all, thank you so much for inviting me, Dr. Lacey. It is an honor. And I'll be happy to discuss on our uh, newly published article. So starting with your first question on cardiovascular disease, traditionally, we think about the risk factors in two big groups. One of them is that of modifiable risk factors, which are the traditional ones, including diabetes, hypertension, abnormal cholesterol, smoking, or obesity, These modifiable factors account for approximately 90% of the population attributable risk in both men and women. In addition to these factors, there are the non-modifiable ones, such as age, race, or ethnicity, family history, which is reflective of a person's genetic makeup. And we know that cardiovascular disease is a polygenic disease.
0: So that's great. So we've got these two categories of modifiable and non-modifiable. But then thinking about our patients in clinic, could we add a third category? What about those protective factors for cardiovascular disease? Could we come up with another list?
1: Sure. The traditional ones that are considered protective are The main one probably is a high HDL cholesterol or high-density lipoprotein cholesterol. The other ones are those that correct the risk factors, so use of medications that control the blood pressure or use of medications that control high cholesterol, such as statins or use of aspirin. These are considered protective factors in the estimation of a person's risk. But the most important one that I think it brings us to our paper is that of a sex-specific difference in cardiovascular disease because the female sex is considered to be a protective factor for cardiovascular disease because women are less likely than men to have cardiovascular events such as stroke or myocardial infarction, especially at younger ages. So in in clinical practice, the risk estimators that are used at primary care level or cardiovascular clinics are those called pooled cohort equations, which are estimators of the 10-year risk of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. And these equations use these factors that we just talked about, both protective and risk. And these include age, sex, race, blood pressure, cholesterol, history of diabetes, smoking, and current use of medications. In this particular equation, sex has a different weight as a predictor. It has a lower coefficient for women than for men. So in other words, if we compare a woman and a man of the same age and equal presence of these risk factors, the estimated 10-year risk will be lower for a woman than that of a man. So I think sex is a very important modifier that is used currently in clinical practice and which is the main character in our story for today.
0: Lena, that's a great description and overview. Thank you. So I learned a lot of things from your article, but one of the interesting points was that you mentioned in your article that cardiovascular risk for death is higher in patients with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, NAFLD, and even higher than death from underlying liver disease. Why is that?
1: Heart disease in general is the the leading cause of death in the United States. In fact, heart disease and stroke account for more deaths than all types of cancer combined. So for any disease to surpass this sobering statistic, it has to have a significant impact on mortality. And while patients with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease do progress to cirrhosis and liver disease complications, this occurs in a small proportion of them so that the liver-related deaths, specifically related to liver causes, affects 2 to 3% of them. In addition to this fact is that the population with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is a population enriched in the cardiovascular risk factors that I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, including diabetes, hypertension, and dyslipidemia. So between these two reasons, the number one cause of death in this population is cardiovascular disease, with liver disease being a distant third.
0: That places some of this discussion on a great perspective. So thinking now about this topic, what led you to this study? What was your hypothesis?
1: The association between fatty liver, metabolic comorbidities, and cardiovascular outcomes has been extensively explored in in several studies. And even we have previously shown that fatty liver disease is an independent risk factor for incident metabolic comorbidities and death and for cardiovascular disease, even in the absence of diabetes, hypertension, and dyslipidemia. These patients are three times more likely to have a cardiovascular event. However, what was not explored before was whether female sex remains a protective factor for cardiovascular disease within this specific population. All the previous studies were in the general population. Furthermore, it had not been explored if the equations, the risk estimators that I mentioned before, those pooled cohort equations, are as accurate within this population with NAFLD compared to those in the general population. So, Our hypothesis was that when we compare patients with NAFLD to those from the general population without NAFLD, the fact that those with NAFLD have a higher metabolic burden, the actual impact of the female sex may be diluted. So this was the question we wanted to answer when we designed this study.
0: Perfect segue. Thinking about the design of the study, there are so many factors here. It must have been really complicated to design this study. How did you go about doing that?
1: So in a question like this, when you want to answer a long-term question, a chronic disease that takes time to evolve, you need the right cohort, which is a large sample size. You need the right database from which you can ascertain all these outcomes and comorbidities, a long enough time to follow them. The outcomes need to be thoroughly assessed and not just sparsely. And we took advantage of the fact that at Mayo Clinic, we have access to a medical record linkage system called Rochester Epidemiology Project Database, which follows the medical history of the entire population of Olmsted County, which is the county which surrounds Rochester. So it includes not only Rochester, but the surrounding areas. And it collates virtually every single medical encounter or health encounter of the population in Olmstead County. So it's a very nice electronic infrastructure with basically 100% follow-up and capture over a long period of time. So we actually created the cohort of all adults who are diagnosed with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in Olmsted County using this electronic infrastructure. And we identified almost 4,000 adults with a diagnosis of NAFLD between 1997 and 2014. We followed these patients until 2018, which was the end of our study, which led to almost 20 years of follow-up for some patients with a median of 7 years. In addition to these, we had the opportunity to create a referent cohort to compare our NAFLD populations to, and these were patients who were age and sex matched, but without a diagnosis of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So using this cohort of 15,000 referents and almost 4,000 adults with NAFLD, we had a, a Pretty solid sample size over a long-term follow-up with good ascertainment of all the outcomes that occur in the life of these patients.
0: So this is great. And before we get to the results of the study, you know, you've got such a huge database, such a huge amount of information. Any roadblocks in interpreting the data?
1: The main roadblock, I think, was in actually creating the database. We wanted to make sure that we are really talking about NAFLD when we created this cohort of almost 4,000 adults because NAFLD has such non-specific diagnostic codes. So we had a very thorough review of their medical records, the electronic records, not only at Mayo Clinic, but the affiliated medical centers to make sure that this uh, diagnosis is indeed Um, accurate in the algorithm that we use. One of the roadblocks, I think, for the interpretation of the data was that of ascertainment bias. We had to plan around it, and the ascertainment bias would, would be due to preferential screening of women or unhealthy controls. Versus men, which is why we would see a difference. We, if we look f- uh, closer to women, we would find more events as if we wouldn't uh, to men. So to overcome this potential bias, we made sure, we actually checked and not we did not change the design, but we made sure that this is not the case by determining the percentage of patients who had routine blood testing such as AST, ALT, or an abdominal ultrasound in men and women to, to use them as surrogates of medical access or access to healthcare. And we used the time frame of five years before and after their index date or, or date of entry. And we found that there was no difference between the frequency of medical care between women and men, which was reassuring that our data is not biased.
0: Yes, and that's great hint and great help to other people doing similar research with large data sets. Thank you. So what were the results of your study?
1: So among this cohort of 19,000 adults, of whom almost 4,000 had NAFLED, we found approximately 4,000 cardiovascular events. So we worked with a significant sample size in terms of outcomes. The main two results that I will mention are the following. One is that In the general population, so in those who do not have NAFLD, we showed that female sex is associated with a lower risk of incident ischemic events, about 29% lower, which was similar to what the general population data showed in other studies. So that emphasized the validity of this database and our approach. When we looked among individuals with NAFLD, we found that this impact was markedly diminished. So there was no significant difference between the incidence of cardiovascular events in men versus that of women, which led to the main conclusion also emphasized in the title of this study that women lose this protection of cardiovascular disease when they have NAFLD. The second main result was that the cardiovascular risk is underestimated in women with NAFLD. When we test these uh, pool cohort equations that are conventionally used in clinics to assess their 10-year risk of cardiovascular events, specifically myocardial infarction or stroke. When we looked among those with NAFLD, we found that they underperform. So the equation underestimates the risk of cardiovascular events in women with NAFLD. And the risk difference between the observed events versus those predicted by the model was off by anywhere between five to 20%. So that's a pretty pretty big range.
0: Yeah, that's a very significant range. Clinically, certainly very important. So Elena, what about men? Did they have a further increased risk of cardiovascular disease?
1: Men do. When we look at men without NAFLD compared to men with NAFLD, we do find that those with NAFLD have a higher risk. However, this risk is not as high as that noted among women. And just to give an example that would be better or easier to to digest, if we take 60-year-old individuals and we look at their excess cardiovascular disease in those with NAFLD versus those without, that excess risk is 18% in women, but 9% is in men, so much lower. When we look at excess mortality at 60-year-old individuals, it's 9% in women and 6% in men. So overall, there is an increased risk, but not as uh, striking as that noted among women.
0: Yeah, those are important differences. And thinking about some other comparisons, what about differences in younger women patients versus older women patients? Uh, Does that play out as well?
1: It does. That was another very interesting finding in this study, was that the incidence rate of events among women with NAFLD is much higher at younger age compared to women without NAFLD. And to give another example is that if we compare a woman with NAFLD who is 50, their risk of cardiovascular events is the same as a woman without NAFLD who is 68. So this means that NAFLD and the associated metabolic comorbidities have a cardiovascular aging effect of approximately 18 years in women. And I find this to be a significant public health importance, specifically because the most recent studies have shown that the largest increase in the incidence of NAFLD occurs among those young, so among young adults, which means that in the future, our NAFLD population will be younger and younger, which means that the cardiovascular morbidity and mortality is probably going to be even higher.
0: An important point for all of us to recognize and kind of thinking about the future a little bit, we all know that NAFLD is increasing in prevalence worldwide. So how do you take these novel results that you just published, and how do you interpret these results but then apply it to clinical practice?
1: The main piece of information that would be a a good point to start the awareness is the fact that among those with NAFLD, women have a different susceptibility to cardiovascular injury than men. That's one thing that... I don't think we were aware of before. The second point that I think can be applicable to clinical practice is that of the use of these calculators of the pooled estimated equation. The major guidelines recommend that decisions about initiating aspirin or statins should be for those who have a 10-year risk of 10% or higher. There is this intermediate group who have a risk of 7.5 to 10% in whom The net benefit of preventative therapy is smaller, so the guidelines are not quite definitive into recommending initiation of aspirin or statin. And this, I think, is the population where um, shared decision-making takes the most important place. And data like this, knowing that NAFLD is a modifier of this cardiovascular risk, specifically among women, is a useful piece of information. So if we sit with a patient who has NAFLD, whose ASCVD risk based on those equations is, let's say, 8%, we could go either way, start something or just monitor. But knowing this piece of information that these equations actually underestimate this risk, including at this ratio of 75 to 10% in this fraction, could be an important additive benefit. So discussion with a patient that this could be underestimating and their risk could actually be higher because they have NAFLD may lead to actual initiation of a statin in this group.
0: So let's personalize this or bring it down to the clinic level, just one more level. So you're sitting in clinic with a young woman who's heavy, who has NAFLD. What do you tell them right now? What do you tell them to do?
1: Currently, we talk about the usual guideline recommendations, which in this population with NAFLD revolve largely around weight loss. And Beyond that, we talk about the modification of the other cardiovascular risk factors which are included in this risk of cardiovascular disease, which are the modifiable ones: control of cholesterol, control of diabetes or prediabetes, stop smoking, and continue to have as much of a healthy lifestyle as possible. Beyond this, using this data, we can have, as mentioned before, a more personalized approach to their risk in whom the patient can be involved into the decision of maybe starting the statin earlier, if they do have this risk or not. So thinking beyond the liver, it is important as hepatologists or gastroenterologists to keep the whole person in mind when we meet with them. And discussion of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease management shouldn't just revolve around uh, estimation of liver fibrosis and uh, monitoring for progression to cirrhosis and other complications, but should also include this awareness of cardiovascular disease. And this is where we have to broaden the goals of management to prevention of cardiovascular disease. And if we're not sure about the need for starting the statin or aspirin, then referring them to a cardiologist would be the next step.
0: It's a great concept and a great thought and involving really others in the care of this complicated patient with a lot of risks. and risk for downstream disease. So one thing we didn't really chat about, and I just want to capture this as we wind up our discussion, is to think about the underlying mechanism for the loss of protection against cardiovascular disease in patients with NAFLD. I think many of our listeners are kind of scientists at heart. What do you think is the underlying mechanism?
1: This remains the big question behind this data, right? I think we can make observations from this type of cohorts, but in terms of pathogenesis and mechanisms, a lot more needs to be done, and I invite my basic science colleagues or those who have an interest in cardiovascular disease to help explore this further. But I do have a hypothesis, which probably at this point still remains at hypothesis level. We know that young and middle-aged women are protected for cardiovascular disease due to their hormonal environment. And we also know that hormonal changes after menopause lead to changes in fat distribution, energy balance, and a higher metabolic burden. Women with NAFLD have a high metabolic burden at young age. So my hypothesis is that this lack of protective effect of the female sex is because of metabolic comorbidities wash out or dilute that benefit of the protective hormonal factor. And in other words, they have a lot of diabetes, hypertension, and hyperlipidemia, even at premenopausal stage, so that the hormonal factors don't get a chance to act as protection. Again, it's just my hypothesis, so it needs to be proven, it needs to be further estimated. And I think that the most important part is that these data need to be validated in different cohorts, and then if uh, it remains, Uh, To show the same results, I think we need to explore our toolkit into better stratification of women with NAFLD by exploring what other methods can we use to further define this risk. Should we use something like coronary artery calcium scores, or are there any other methods that we can further tease out who is at risk and who is not?
0: been a thought-provoking conversation discussion. Thank you so much. And for our listeners, if you haven't quite read this article, it's available in the November 2019 issue. And again, Dr. Allen, thank you so much.
1: Thank you.